Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome to another episode of The Wagon Wheel, uh, recorded live on Spotify Greenroom. If you download the app, you search for my name, you should be able to find me. That will tell you when we're doing it. We also advertise them on Twitter and on Instagram stories. Or I don't really understand Instagram. Thank you to our sponsors, Manscaped, uh, who are, you know, helping us keep our balls as closely shaved as you would like. You can use the code REDINCA all one word and get 20% off their products and free worldwide shipping. I'm a lawnmower 4.0 man myself and big thanks to Bodyline t-shirts, which I'm not actually wearing today, but big fan of them as well. So thank you to the sponsors. Also, obviously huge thanks again and always to the Patreon and also the buy me a coffee people. So a lot of people have been buying me coffee. So I don't drink coffee if we're being honest, but I don't know it sounds weird saying like buy me a Coke Zero or buy me a bourbon. Um, although I suppose buy me a bourbon would be okay, but then it'd have to be rye. We'd have to get into details. So I've left it at buy me a coffee. But thank you to all those. But if you are on Patreon, you get access to be able to ask the first questions on this here wagon wheel. So Jimat Raja uh, has asked the first question. I've been following the WBBL, and it seems strange that the teams are changing their batting orders from match to match. Katie Mack has been shuffled from the opening spot to number seven. Even the teams that are consistently winning, Rodriguez has opened with at least four partners this season. What is the logic behind this? Look, I haven't seen any real WBBL um, games this year. Um, probably seen maybe two or three, so I haven't seen enough to, to notice any patterns. My guess uh, guess is it might be matchups dependent, though, um, because I wouldn't think you would change your openers. Uh, unless there was a matchup reason for it, would be my guess. Um, the only other thing I suppose could be conditions based. Um, perhaps you have, you know, an opener who, you know, on a smaller ground or on a larger ground or on a faster wicket or on a slower wicket. I think those things are all potentially um, uh, something that could happen there. But no, uh, for me, because I, I, I haven't followed it off, I'm not quite sure there. But um, if you're changing your openers, that usually means that there's a uh, there's a fairly strong reason. You don't change your openers. Uh, on a whim that much. So, you know, the rest of the batting order usually floats around, but unless you've got a pinch hitter coming up, uh, you don't do that with your openers. Uh, Ian says, uh, to what extent can the ECB in English counties hope to learn from the Azim Rafiq affair and positively develop relationships with a huge number of British Asian cricketers and lovers while there are virtually no Asian coaches operating in England? Well, that's the the first problem, isn't it? Um, uh, I think when I did the numbers, there were 27 men's professional head coaches in English cricket last year. Uh, and of those, Vikram Solanke was the only Asian English coach. Uh, there was also Mahela J. Wardner at the Southern Braves. There was one other non-white coach, which was Mark Elaine. I think off the top of my head, there's six Australian, three, three New Zealand, two South African and a Zimbabwean no Indian, no Pakistani, and one Sri Lankan coach, let alone English, Asian coaches. And I remember when, um, oh, uh, I'm not sure he's the coach anymore, but uh, Ajmal Shazad, when he was the um, head coach of the MCC Young Players, I'm not sure if he is at the moment or not, but when he was the head coach of the ECB, uh, MCC Young Players, sorry, um, I remember a former player saying, oh, it's box ticking. 
it's, it's like, well, if it is box ticking, they haven't ticked many boxes, right? Like, there's no one out there. Um, and this is a big problem. It's, I think, I think there's almost like two issues when it comes to English cricket. One is that sort of class structure that has come through English cricket for a long time. And then a lot of the modern coaches are players who broke through that class structure and they did it, you know, by working really hard and being really grizzled professional cricketers. And they, they have this sort of Southern African, Australian, New Zealand ethic, work ethic to them and drinking ethic and culture ethic. And then you filter these Asian players who often come from vastly different backgrounds. And, uh, you know, I think they're quite, sometimes seen as troublemakers, sometimes seen as lazy, sometimes seen as having a bad attitude. And it's probably none of the, those cases. Sometimes it's just they're different and they stick out a little bit. Um, it's a really, really – I think it's a big concern for English cricket going forward, um, and it has been for quite some time. Azam Rafiq is, is a horrific story, um, but the bigger problem is that he's just the first one to speak out. We've had, you know, a year of black Af- – uh, sorry, black um, English players speaking out as well um, on the back of that. So there's two fairly major parts of your cricket um, that aren't really fitting in and are saying there's something wrong with the system. So – uh, I'm not sure that this is a wake-up call because um, surely they've known about this for a long time, but maybe it's time that they can, because of what's happened with Azam Rafiq and now what, perhaps what's happening with Essex and the ECB getting involved as well, there's a chance for some of these clubs to just, uh, what's, what, I'm trying to think of what the right word is, but change the system. You know, that's why they call it systemic racism, right? Uh, James says, when a player has a strong track record but recent poor performances over a year or two, how do you make decisions about their current worth to a team? I'm thinking here about players like Finch and Morgan in T20s or a couple of years ago, Pakistan situation with Azhar Ali and Asad Shafiq. Yeah, uh, really interesting. I think with T20, quite often you can go through a run of anywhere between 5 to 15 poor games. That probably doesn't mean that much. Uh, I actually had a look at uh, Finch's record over the last two years. He's down on his previous numbers, but it wasn't as bad as, you know, I've got one of my mates has always been the biggest Aaron Finch fan ever. And he he says, he's got to retire. He's got to retire. I didn't see that in the numbers Uh, with Morgan. I've said this before. Owen Morgan said this before. He seems to be a bit of a streaky player more so than, you know, there, there are generally players who, you know, who potter, potter along and, and always do okay. And then there are other players who have, you know, high highs and very low lows. You know, think of someone like Sean Marsh, perfect example of that. Um, Owen Morgan seems to be another sort of player like that. I, I wouldn't be too worried. There's another World Cup around the corner uh, unless, but, but, you know, either team has uh, – what you're looking for is signs that they are no longer the player that they used to be. What you're not looking for is bad form. I hope that makes sense. So in some cases, you can see when they play longer innings that the problems are there more than you can see when they make a bunch of small innings. So that's what I'm looking for. Uh, you know, Have they fundamentally changed their technique? Are they not able to clear the ropes and they used to be able to clear the ropes? Um you might have someone like MS Dhoni, for instance, who um, got away with playing spinners for a long time, and now he can't hit sixes. Uh, you know, now he can't crush spinners the way that he maybe once did, or doesn't feel able to. Um, that is, those are the sorts of signs you're looking for from older players when they're on their way out. So, um, if you had a bowler, and maybe what, the way that the bowler got out of an over was the bouncer right, and they're no longer able to get out of the over with a bouncer anymore, then, again, that would be the sort of sign that you'd be looking for. Um, so with that, that's the T20 side of things. With the – with the um, uh, I've lost, who was it? Azhar Ali and Asad Shafiq. I always thought that Azhar Ali was very good at staying in, not particularly good at – like I, I've always thought of Azhar Ali as, as the, one of the perfect examples of sort of a Ravi Shastri-type player or – maybe a Daniel Vittori type player in that they're very limited as batters in some ways, but they're very dogmatic and they've built themselves up into being batters. I think at, at a certain point, there's probably a ceiling on that. And when they are found out that kind of player, they probably don't have as many things to fall back on as being a batter. I think Asad Shafiq's problem was more to do with the fact that he made a lot of softer runs batting at number six. And, as good as he was at number six, I think he might be the highest run scorer of all time there. It's actually a really bad sign 
that you're the highest run scorer of all time at number six because that's where your younger players should be coming in, your older players should be moving out, or your all-rounder should be playing, right? Um, and the fact that they had a specialist batter doing that for so long, I wonder if he just always had limitations. But what you, again, what you're looking for, um, uh, Henry Nichols is a really, really good example of this, of, of someone who had this incredible record. Everyone was talking him up, and then he has this huge dip on the back end, right? And I think what you need to be able to be aware of um, is, is there something concrete that has changed? And in Henry Nichols' case, it was, he basically, first couple of years that he did really well in test cricket, he played offspin beautifully, and then he just stopped being able to play offspin at all. Perhaps the offspin has worked him out. Perhaps he changed his technique. I, I don't know exactly what happened there. That, for me, once you find that nugget, A, you can go to the player and go, you're not batting worse. Just off spinners are getting you out a lot. Should we go through your game? Um, and I think that is what you should be doing. Um, if, if you know you've got a player of Finch's quality, Morgan's quality, Azza Ali's quality, Asad Shafiq's quality, I, I think you do give them a longer rope. But I think the more important thing is not looking at their scores and not looking at their failures and actually looking at ball-by-ball ball data. What are you doing in this? You know, Have you changed your technique? Uh, is, you know, is there everything okay with your eyesight? Silly thing, but you know we certainly heard players talk about that before. You know, are you looking? Uh, uh, you know, are your feet moving the way that you would like them to fit, move? All this sort of stuff um, is certainly why um, I think it's I think it's quite important um, going forward. Just one second, everyone. Um, actually, I'm going to read the next question and I'm going to answer it while I go and look to my baby who's decided to start screaming. Uh, Christopher says the plans for the Euro T20 League looks really promising if it can go ahead. Do you think a similar structure could be at all possible for first-class cricket between the three countries in the hopes of developing... Oh, I've got a good one for this. So, Christopher, they did try a... Um, uh, in the short term, Scottish cricket and Dutch cricket really went towards the white ball game. And I think by going towards the white ball game, uh, what, what's the best way of putting it? It, uh, it changed the priorities of the team. So, yeah, there was, there was certainly uh, thinking of that. And I think in the future, that would be a very, you know, a very good idea going forward but i think those three boards are a long way off it but i thought the t20 series was great too and i really hope that they can do that i would say this that uh, obviously covid didn't help but you could see of recent times how much more the um how much more cricket scotland netherlands were playing and even ireland i suppose as well um although they're a test playing nation now but you could see how much more cricket that they were playing of recent times because of the better structures that we have in world cricket so i thought that was great uh, Gopinov says, it's just painful to see Steve Smith in T20 squads and teams, but hardly having any game time. It's like the management thinks he's not very good with his format, but keeping him on for other reasons, mentoring support. As an ardent fan of Steve, it's hard for me to take it. Uh, what's your take on forever padded, padded on, padded up? <laughs> um, Steve Smith, uh, should he just be in the squad? Look, I think Australia were a bit confused. I think Steve Smith was desperate to play in this tournament. And I don't think they felt that comfortable saying he shouldn't play. They've been trying to get him to bat number four, and he wants to bat number three. And, you know, there are situations where he should bat number three, um, like, you know, when Shaheen Afidi freed his bowling crazy. Um, so that's the sort of Australian thing. They know that they can make him into a pretty good number four. My, my memory of him was when he got to the death, he could actually score quite quickly. Um, what they didn't want is him to be 30 from 30 when he got to the death. Um, and that is the bigger problem. I think there's no reason... I, I, Kane Williamson has proved this. Virat Kohli has proved this. There's no reason why Root, Smith, Kohli, and Williamson can't do it. It's really a mindset thing, and it's not how they think. Uh, we've seen it with Smith in one-day cricket as well. And I think teams are like, well... He's almost like an insurance policy. And and that's why I would have seen him. That's what I would have done with Australia. I don't even think... I think with Stoinis and Wade in the team, I might not have even played him. Um, you know, I would have gone uh, perhaps with one of uh, the other players, um, Inglis, Philippi, you know, whoever whoever they liked, whoever was in their squad at the time. Um, because you had, you had a, you know, a very high-quality batters that you could throw up the order if the ball was zipping around everywhere. Um, but, yeah, I think in that is generally what happens. He's also, don't forget, a brilliant fielder, uh, although he dropped a sitter in this tournament, or maybe two sitters, but uh, he's a brilliant fielder as well. Um, and, you know, he thinks about the game in quite an interesting way. So I think there's 
a lot of different reasons why Steve Smith ends up in these teams. Um, but I always find it fascinating that he is in such demand and Joe Root seems to have no demand. And I think Joe Root was a better T20 player and can bowl as well. Um, it's, it's quite interesting. Ramna says, why was Mark Tabor... Why was Mark Taylor unable to repeat his phenomenal success as T20 captain in the ODI format? Uh, Well, he wasn't a very good ODI batter, I suppose is probably one way of saying it. I recall uh, he was dropped as captain and player in 1997 in in favour of Steve Waugh, who managed to achieve a high win rate with the same resources. He didn't have the same resources, did he, though? Um, Because he didn't have Mark Taylor. Uh, You know, they changed their opinion about how to play one day cricket in that period. Uh, they went with specialists. So, you know, Gilchrist war at the top. Um, uh, they uh, changed the way that they bowled. They changed the way that they thought about it. I, I think it's really important to note that we think about one day cricket far more seriously than Mark Taylor did. And probably Steve Waugh did. Right. Um, I remember Ricky Ponting told me he was one of the first Australian cricketers to take one-day cricket really seriously. Dean Jones was probably one one of the few before him who did. And look how much success Dean Jones had. A lot of the others, they just it was just something to do when you weren't playing a test match to make a little bit of extra money and be on the TV. Oh, something's breaking on my office. Um, and uh, you know, so I think um, you know, I think from that uh, perspective. You know, you don't have um, – I, I don't think they were thinking about it as much um, or planning for it as much, but I think a lot of it was just the changing of the generation. Australia started thinking about one-day cricket very differently probably after that 96 World Cup, probably with what Sri Lanka did to them as much as anything. And to be fair, even though I don't think Steve Waugh, it was his thing, he, he's, he had a lot of early success in one-day cricket, and I think that he also saw it as a chance to go on and – um, get more success, but yeah, I, I don't think I don't th- I don't ever remember thinking Mark Taylor was a terrible captain. He got them to the World Cup final um, in '96 in Asia. Um, I just think that that team probably got better, but Australian cricket got better after '96 and '97 as well. So it's not as if that those things are accidental. Um, you know, would have would have been great to see you know Mark Taylor in charge of some of the the incredible teams that Steve Waugh had uh, available to him later on and. Um, and Ricky Ponting um, had, because uh, obviously he's a much different coach, a captain than that, those guys. And Cameron, uh, Cameron says, how the fuck can a WBBL team with Alyssa Healy, Elise Perry, Ash Gardner, Shafali Furman not even make the finals? Um, he's gone through the entire team here. Look, I, had, I, I said before, sadly, I haven't seen it. it um, you, when you're listing out those players, it does seem like it's a mistake. But... It's the variance, I suppose, of T20 leagues at a certain point. You would expect a team of that quality um, to qualify in a sort of, in the same way that I suppose you would have expected Mumbai to qualify of the IPL. But there is a variance here. You can get into a bad run. They don't play that many games. It's a bit like the World Cup. You know, if you're having a sm- these smaller series, um, you're certainly going to have um, situations where... Um, uh, you're certainly going to have situations where the best team doesn't win. Uh, you can make that argument, you know, very, very easily for the, the World Cup that we've just had. Um, you know, one day World Cup, that could happen as well. Um, these things do happen. Um, Tony W said that Mark Taylor was an excellent one day, but he averaged 32 with a strike rate of 59. I hope he was talking about someone else. Um, uh, Sorry, I had to look that up once I saw that message. Uh, someone has said, oh, Steve Smith. I think Steve, oh, Steve Smith. I think Steve Smith is a fine one-day batter, but he does not have the ability to score to run a ball between overs 10 and 40. Right? I don't think Steve Smith gets a game for England. Um, he's a f- okay one-day batter, but he's not in the top probably five or 10 in the world. He goes on, on little trips, Steve Smith, when he's um, in incredible form. Um, where he's quite good, but I, you know, I very rarely would have him in my top ten. Um, you know, one day batters. I think the the Indian and the um, the Indian and the England players do, are far better in the middle overs than he is at the same role. Um, and yeah, I think there are more explosive players and uh, more dynamic players around than Steve Smith. I don't think he's terrible, but part of the problem they had was again his ability to score between a strike rate of seventy and eighty five. 
Steve Smith's incredible. Then what they were trying to do with Australia is saying to him, once he got to 50 off that rate, could he then step up to score off a strike rate of 120, 125? And when they asked him to do that, um, he quite often failed. And so you end up with someone who's chewed up a lot of balls, who's not going on to get a big 100, um, and can't cash in um, the way that they would like. So you can't play, you can't follow India's game plan, which was start slow, build up, and then explode towards the back end. And you can't really follow England's uh, game plan, which is score it more than a run a ball all the way through the innings with Steve Smith. That's what Australia felt. It, it's not just his fault either. That was sort of team-wide, um, if you have a look at it. Asad said... Um, why don't you like Michael Vaughan? Is it anything to do with some of the things that's coming to light in recent weeks? Um, I don't know Michael Vaughan particularly well. Uh, I, 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 you know, um, of people in the UK media, I probably have less to do with him than anyone else. Uh, Michael Vaughan decided to be a Piers Morgan-like personality, so he would say things that he doesn't believe in, and knowing that uh, they would get him hits and that they would get him attention, um, and that's disingenuous. Like, if he really believes it, that's fine. But if you're just saying it to get more hits and to get more work, uh, mate, I don't give a shit. And that, and that the thing is that he says this to a lot of people who um, they think what he said is utterly serious. They don't know the game that he's playing. And then people like me have to, oh, Michael Vaughan said this. Well, Michael Vaughan doesn't believe in what Michael Vaughan has said. Uh, was, that, was there an element of him being racist? Yeah, I saw the tweets. I retweeted them about back in the the time and you know I, i've had a go at him and i've mentioned them on podcasts and videos over the years um i certainly think he has issues um uh, and uh, i didn't know i don't i, I don't think like that i knew about the azim rafiq thing directly um but you know the moen ali tweets um the tweets about what languages waiters speak in english and all that's that's racist racist nonsense um but mostly, yeah, it's, um, I, I think he's a disingenuous person. Um, and uh, uh, it'd be really interesting to see what happens next because I don't think he'll go away. I think he'll continue to get work. All right, let's get to, ooh, we've got a couple of callers. Baska, I got you. Yeah, I'm there. Hey, Jared, so I wanted to talk about the Ashes selection has happened and there's a lot of chatter about Faja uh, being selected and Head being selected. But... Uh, uh, they, as you mentioned slightly before, that you know, at number five and six, uh, they should be batting uh, somebody who's new. So, well, do, first of all, do you think that Khwaja's selection is the, is the right way to go? Given uh, I know that he's the highest scorer in the Shield cricket right now, but given what uh, Ian Chappell has said and his multiple failures uh, across, uh, especially in Ashes, his record against the England team, and uh, even and I even thought that Head was also not a great selection. Maybe they could have gone with uh, PDP or some new players. Yeah, I'm. I don't think. I mean, they probably want Pekoski, don't they? Realistically, to play, and they're probably hoping that Green comes good. I mean, you look at that squad, and I haven't had a lot of time to look at it since the World Cup, since it came out. But you look at that squad, and you've got Harris, Head, Kawaja, Green. Am I missing another batter? So Warner, Labuschagne, and Smith, obviously, you know, locked in. But if you look at the other guys there. Those are those are players who have had either technical flaws or or struggled before at times. So they're just going to bowl around the wicket to head. And I don't know. I haven't seen enough of head in the in the last couple of months to see if he's fixed that. But he couldn't face it when he was in Test cricket last time. So unless they've unless they've spent a lot of time fixing his technique, it doesn't seem to me like he's going to be able to score um, when they bowl right arm around the wicket to him. I think he had one of the lowest averages in the world. Basically, he's a Incredible test player until you bowl right arm around the wicket to him. Um, uh, Kawaja, I haven't looked at the... Because I, 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 he hasn't been probably playing as much of recent times. I, I've always thought that Kawaja is probably not quite a bankable test player. But is he a test player who could average between 37 and 42? Probably. Um, is that good enough to get you in the team now? Most If he could average 37 at the moment, they might drop him after a couple of series. But... You know, the way that global averages have been going, you would probably take that, especially in an Ashes, if you could do that for five tests. Um, uh, my problem with Green, and I said it, I think almost the first time he he batted, um, uh, was that he basically, um, I feel like he had a very good first-class technique, and when he's got to the test level, he's going to go out LBW a lot. I think I said that in his first or second innings. 
Um, I've seen nothing um, from him. I, I'm not sure how he gets around that problem in test cricket. People are bowling a lot straighter. They're, they're basically what bowlers are doing now is they're coming from an angle, so it's hard to leave the ball, and they're bowling so it hits the, the, the off bail uh, from an angle. And then if the wobble seam moves away, um, you've got a chance of getting a caught behind a court and slips. And if the wobble scene comes back, you've got a chance of um, LBW or bold. I think that that is different to probably what you get in first-class cricket, although it will probably start to spread through first-class cricket as well. And then you have the DRS angle. I just think that, and again, a bit like Head, unless he's changed his actual technique um, in a short period of time. And I saw things with Cameron Green where I thought he was trying to do that. Um, I think that's going to, it's going to be really tough for him. So, but your, to, 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 I suppose to take your question to the next level is how many other guys are there out there that wouldn't have similar issues? Um, and, and Pekoski is probably the one that they're desperate for. Um, who knows if he'll, he will ever be able to do it. Um, everyone else is kind of limited. Um, and you're not throwing them into like a normal environment, like, Going from first-class cricket to test cricket at the moment is really hard uh, because the, the bowlers are just there's – there's a bigger step up, I think, at the moment than there has been in a while just because we have this incredible era of bowlers with the analysis and also the skill of modern bowlers has all sort of come together at one. So I think a lot of players are going to struggle when they play test cricket right at the moment. So in that case, you could see why someone like Kawaja, who they know. They know Kawaja, right? They, they know who he is. They understand him. Uh, that makes sense. I, I think they're already taking in Harris, Green, and Head. They're already taking some pretty big risks within that squad to begin with. Um, and so uh, it'd be really interesting to see how how they go um, how they go forward with that. But um, th- um, thank you very much for your question. One more question: The interval of the all rounder sort of like Cameron Green never did not take a wicket against India. So wouldn't uh, like Marsh and Hilton Cartwright both who are uh, like decent bats also? Uh, would we uh, should have been considered or like uh, Green is given his technique as well as his bowling is not coming through? Would he have gone for uh, any of the other all-rounders? I mean, I'd be shocked. I'd have to look up uh, Hilton Cartwright's record of recent times, but I'd be shocked if he ever took consistent wickets in Test cricket ever. The way he bowls. Let's have a look at what's uh, what's Mitchell Marsh been doing. Mitchell Marsh, first-class cricket. Perhaps I mean I feel like they gave Mitchell Marsh a good go. I, I think they just think that Cameron Green's a better bat. Also, the thing with Cameron Green is he he was when it comes to his line and length, he was all over the place. Sorry, not his line, his length. He was all over the place. If he could just hit a length at his height with his pace and his size and his strength, I don't really see how he wouldn't be a very good Jacob Oram or Tom Moody type bowler. Right, because he is tall, and you're not going to be able to like. That's all he has to be able to do. Um, whereas Hilton Cartwright would have to probably swing the ball around corners, and I think Mitchell Marsh. I just don't think they think his batting is is that good. Um, I don't think. I don't think at Test level they had a big problem with Mitchell Marsh's bowling. It's just that you know, we, what's the average? Twenty five. Um, in Test cricket, maybe he'll get another go now um, that they feel more comfortable comfortable with him. Um, there's also a chance that you know, uh, you know, spin is probably uh, something that he's not as you know he's not as good against. Perhaps England will have some very pace heavy lineups as well. So there is, I suppose, a possibility there. But uh, thank you very much for your question, um, uh, Kyle. You've disappeared. So if you wanted to ask another question, Kyle, if you could um, line yourself back up, um, another one's come in in the chat. Uh, Darius said, are you going to make a video on the Yorkshire controversy? I was trying to get Azim Rafiq. I was actually supposed to be working with him, but um, uh, I think he's just too busy. Um, so I just wanted to get him to sit down and, and, and chat. But I might make a video anyway, but that is uh, what I was waiting for. Uh, Sunit has asked how my shoulder is. My shoulder is actually quite sore, but it's not where the problem is. Obviously, my, I broke my elbow and my wrist, but uh, my shoulder is quite sore from trying to carry them. I can almost have full flexibility back to my head and face and neck and everything um but i'm only halfway to having my arms straight so it's really just a question now of either how long uh, it takes me to straighten my arm or whether i need another operation there uh, marco marco you there hey jared how you doing yeah not too bad how are you well bad thanks uh, two questions quick one first any connection between the loss of your right arm and the article you published today 
<laughs> no, that was, uh, the masturbation was a long time back. Although, uh, you know, it, that's why it pays to be able to throw with both arms, which I could never do, actually. So uh, that didn't, didn't help me at all. I never got to the point, actually, of with my right arm coming back, I never got to practice my left arm cricket skills. I was really wondering if I could make a late career as a, um, as a left arm wrist spinner, but we'll never know. Uh, history will always wonder. And that's my real question. What would be your opinion on changing DRS so that you lose the review on umpire's call? Um, I think that uh, I, I think I did a podcast about this sort of stuff with Kartikeya. The reason that they don't want that to happen is that the they know the technology isn't that accurate, and so that there is a margin of error. And so what the technology companies have said, whether it be Hawkeye or Eagle Eye back in the day, um, is basically that, look, if, if the ball's hitting the middle of middle stump, um, obviously, the margin of error is so low that we know, right? Once you get to the point of whether it's hitting seven millimeters or three millimeters or even you know, 20 millimeters, the margin of error goes up massively on that technology. And so what that companies have said is we would feel a lot more comfortable if our technology was not used for that. Um, because that is where we start to think that things are um, a bit shady, which is even when with the with the height, they changed the one on the, did they change the bales? I'm trying to remember the, the full details. I'm not sure the technology companies were fully, like Hawkeye and, and some of the others were fully backing that. Um, that is my memory of the situation anyway, um, partly because they know that it, there is, it's, 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 it's as exact as you know we can probably get in in the next few years but it's not an exact system in that way and that there is there are sometimes errors so the perfect example of something that me and Kartikeya talk about there is how often we get wrong where the first contact of the ball is which makes a huge difference when you're building the simulation systems and so the pad is not like the bat do you know what i mean it depresses um, and sometimes you can flick the front of the pad, but the big thud is kind of behind that. And that was where the ball tracking is done. Those little things can make a huge difference when we're talking about the outside edge of the stumps. And uh, that's one of the reasons that those companies are, and I would say more errors are probably made with that, where the ball actually hits the pad because of the frame rates um, as much as anything um, than anything else. So that's why uh, most, most people who've researched this uh, probably back the umpire's call decision. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It just seemed to me that like if the purpose originally was to avoid the howler and also from a perspective of like upping over rates and making sure, you know, because we spend a lot of time doing reviews, particularly in tests. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if you watched 100, but that the review system was just quicker. Like, I think there was probably a lot of, uh, put it this way, I, me and Adam Collins have uh, both moaned about this a lot. Part of the problem that the review thing takes so long is that they're trying to do it in a truck at the ground. And um, they don't always have the computing power that they need to do it quickly. And then the other reason that they're getting it so wrong is you've got an umpire who at most, most umpires are going to do it a third of their time. Like we should have specialist DRS umpires probably in our proper studio with hugely pr processing computers and, and everything available to them. Sometimes we have problems with DRS where the umpires don't know what to ask for, right? And they don't ask for the right, things and they don't get it if you had specialists it would be quicker it would be better um and you could use higher computing power would be my guess you could have you know um you could have this sort of stuff in server rooms and and all sorts of things i'm slightly getting past my expertise here marco but um essentially that's what the nba does i think that's what the nfl does premier league football might do the same i think now as well uh we just haven't got there in cricket yet and so we have we have middle-aged men who are not always the best at technology who don't do this regularly um, and it slows down the system. Um, I think that's a, you know, another thing that we do. So there are, I think there are many ways that we could speed it up, but I don't have a big problem with umpire's call, but um, partly because I have studied the technology and I do kind of understand um, that it is not as, um, it's not as foolproof um, at, to be able to get away with that would be my guess, especially around the edges of those stumps. Thanks for your question. Thanks. Kyle, you there, mate? Yep. Thanks. Sorry about that. And uh, for the record, me and some other baseball fans who watch the 220 World Cup love Cricket's review system where you can hear the umpire. It's a lot superior to what we have. Yeah, I, the baseball one's not great, is it? I mean, they, it is, 
uh, some of the other sports, I, I can't remember if it's cricket or tennis that came up with the umpire part of it, but it's it's a really, really important sort of, like, is it the Football World Cup where they, I don't think they had it, and it felt like everyone was just, like someone went off to their room to check stuff, and, you know, I really like the idea of talking through stuff, and it makes you understand like very basic things of, oh, they're not even reviewing for that other thing, which is maybe how this person has actually been dismissed. <laughs> exactly. They just send it to New York, and the, it just comes back to the field, and, you get, and the announcers try to guess what the uh, decision was. But uh, I had a question about platoon advantage, so left hand, right hand. I don't hear it really talked about in T20, and only really when it comes to spinning and spinning the ball away from the bat. I wanted to ask, you know, is there a left-right platoon advantage for seamers typically, or do left-arm seamers just typically have an advantage because you see less of them? Yeah, left-arm seamers have an advantage over everyone. Right. I think the numbers bear that out. And we basically, we have scraped the bottom. of Like if you're a left arm um, bowler and you can bowl 79 miles an hour, um, even if you spray it around, you probably have a first-class career, right? Like it, at the very least, you've got, you've got scouted at one stage, right? Like we really sc- scrape the bottom barrel as low as we can with that. And, um, and you'll see more and more of that over the next, you know, when cricket grows to new regions, you know, um, it will be, you know, the Namibian left arm seamers and, um, you know, a Brazilian w- woman left arm seamer that will come up because we know that there is an advantage there. There is, I think I've looked at it for seamers. So the, the the thought process always was that it's very hard for a seam bowler to adjust their line between left hand and right hand. There's not a lot that backs that up when you do look at the numbers. I think I found something in one day cricket that suggests there's a slightly higher wide rate when that happens, but it doesn't actually affect the averages or the economy as much as you would think. So I think that's the case. There's, I think because I don't know what there is in baseball, but I think in cricket it's about thirty-five percent left-hand batters. Do you know what it is in baseball? That sounds about right. I would have to check, but then we also have like twelve percent switch hitters. So yeah. So I thought my memory of baseball is that you probably it's other than the switch hitting um, side of things, it's probably more people in baseball. If you're either left-hand dominant, you bat left-handed or you're right-hand dominant, you're about right-handed, whereas what we're finding in cricket is that that's not the case. So we have a lot of right-hand dominant people who who um, bat left-handed. So I would have thought that it's maybe a slightly higher um, case of left-handed batters, which means that, again, it's not as rare. So if you, you, if you think about it, just on a very basic level, for uh, uh, international cricket, 11% of the deliveries are from left-arm seam, but you're bowling to left-handers 35% of the time. And if you extrapolate that out, as I just said, it's very hard to find someone who can bowl 80 miles an hour, 85 miles an hour, 90 miles an hour left arm seam at the lower levels. It's not that hard to find left-handers at the lower levels. There are certain countries that don't produce them as much, like India and whatever. Um, So my memory is that a left-right combination is good and a left-left combination is good. Um, But the actual differential in in it, let's say, a test, um, situation is not as important as you probably would think it to be. Now, weirdly, left-handed left-handed batters have ha- really struggled in the last three to four years, or maybe even longer than that, maybe um, even five to ten years, for a combination of two reasons. The first one is the DRS and the spinners, um, and the second one is a little bit of DRS, but also um, right-arm bowlers coming around the wicket to them. Um, and so le- all the numbers are probably lower on left-hand batters than they were before. So I think um, uh, Jonas, uh, um, analytics Jonas, um, I think that's his Twitter account. I hope I've got that right. He always says that he thinks that left-hand batters are over-promoted in test cricket and that they're not as useful as you think they are. But but teams think they need a left-hander. So Australia is a famous one for this. Australia hates not having any left-handers. Um, and, and Nathan Lehman and Ben Jones in their books, they talk about this a lot, the fact that when Australia tours India, they take all these left-handers, and then they have to face a buttload of off-spin on spinning decks and really struggle. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, there is that, um, there is that thing that I think Australia has been a country that has always done that. Within cricket, no matter what format of cricket you get, players, uh, oh, sorry, or well, coaches and selectors, 
etc. Always talk about needing left-handers. That's not so. It's not a T Twenty cricket thing. I think the difference is that you're hearing it more in T Twenty because you're hearing people talk about matchups more. Um, but you do hear. Maybe I'm slightly biased in this because it's such a big thing in Australia. But when I grew up, it, there was always that thing of got to get a left-hander in the middle order, got to get a left-hander at the top of the order. Um, left-hand opening combinations, like a left-hand, right-hand opening combination was always seen as the ideal um, to mi- mix up the lines of the bowlers. Um, and then the other thing was, like, there's a great old story, um, David Hooks, uh, this cricketer who never quite made it, but was an incredibly talented cricketer. Um, and uh, he was playing against England and Tony Gregg, when he walked past, Someone said, oh, what do you think of David Hooks, the new Australian player? And Tony Gregg said, oh, just another rubbish Australian left-hander. Like it was that famous a phrase that people thought about it that way. So clearly, and that was in the late 70s, of course, famously for anyone who remembers that story, they they would go on to talk about the fact that David Hooks then hit Tony Gregg for five straight fours. Probably not the stupidest thing Tony Gregg ever said in his life, but, but yeah, so it's certainly, that's the period where I really start, if you look through the history of cricket, it's that 70s, 80s period where people start talking a little bit more about left-handers and getting left-handers into the team and um, disrupting the opposition. Uh, for the, for the, you know, the same reason you have in T20 cricket. If you're playing Jack Leach, right, um, you, don't want, um, you don't want a whole team of right-handers. That's what someone like Jack Leach will want, and smart teams probably do that. If you've, especially in the old days when you have outswing-dependent right-arm bowlers, um, you know, you want a left-hander in at least to affect their line, if nothing else. So, um, yeah, it does it does affect it, and it is involved. It's probably more to do with the fact that we don't talk about Test cricket in the same way, Kyle. I would suggest is the difference there. The spin, like I, you hear a lot of like spin away being important. T twenty is that also a thing in Test cricket? Because I again, I haven't heard talked about it, but that just might be, like you said, matchups. Yeah, no, exactly. It's exactly the same in all formats. Um, uh, yeah, uh, there is there are players that go against it, obviously, but as a general rule, you want to be able to move the ball away from the eye line. I would assume, and I'm not an expert in this, but I would assume, and I'm doing this for the video, Kyle, so you might have to go back to the video a little bit, but if you think about it, when the ball is moving away from you, mm-hmm. it is literally moving away from your eye line. When the ball is moving back into you, it's literally moving into your eye line. So I would assume that is the fundamental reason why in cricket it's always better to move the ball away from a batter than in. There are players the opposite of that. I've got a feeling Martin Guptill might be one of them. Um, I think Vera Coley might be another one. There's, there's a few guys who actually don't don't mind the ball moving away from them um, when it comes to spin. Uh, uh, but it's not it's not that common when you look across the game um, and it's probably become less common now with DRS because of the way that you have to play it. Um, because, you know, now you, you've you got that, it's almost like a double threat with DRS, whereas before the biggest threat was the ball would go past the outside edge. Now the bigger threat is the ball can go past the outside edge, and if they get a straight one, you're also a chance of being bowled or LBW. So, and that's exactly the same case in test cricket as it is in, in anything else. Um, the only time that that is massively on its head is left-handers facing leg spinners on their fourth and fifth day of a test match because of the footmarks or, or left-arm finger spinners. And, that, and then you see the most drastic change in um, uh, ball spinning away and ball spinning in because it's coming out of literal rocks. Um, and there's that old, the, the other thing that you will hear a lot is that off spinners do much better in games when they're paired up with left-arm seam bowlers. So for the same same reason. Um, but yeah, uh, great question. Thanks so much, mate. Thank you. All right. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Dad. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, not too bad. What's your question, mate? Yes, I wanted to ask you about uh, why do you is playing such a big part? I mean, why is it having such a big impact on cricket games? Because like, uh, in our sport, uh, the toying cause decides so many things. So, uh, in the day, yesterday's match, uh, it was so due, it was really hard for the bowlers to do anything. So luckily, you did not play a, a huge part uh, in the semifinals and finals of the World Cup. But, like, is it a broadcaster thing because they don't want, they want the matches to happen at night so they can uh, gain as much money as possible? Or, like, yeah. why haven't the teams been able to adopt i mean to the to the due i mean why haven't they uh, been able to adopt like make certain team calls related to that and 
Have you played cricket? Yeah, I have. I mean... Have you bowled with a wet ball? Yeah, I have. But... I mean, other than not picking spinners, right, I'm not sure what you're supposed to be able to do. And to be honest, uh, I mean, you said the Jew didn't play a part. I don't know if Chris Jordan's come out, but I thought there was a little bit of Jew in Chris Jordan's, you know, um, disastrous over. I could be wrong. I don't think it was massive, and it might have just come... Um, a little bit, um, but the way he, I've never seen him struggle to land the ball um, so much before. So I hope there was a little bit of due there. Um, but it happens to seam bowlers, especially now, like seam bowlers are trying to bowl. If you're Anrik Nokia or um, who's the other one? Uh, who's the other guy's bowling? Um, oh, uh, Tamal Mills and there's a third one. who are, They're bowling leg spin at 95 kilometers an hour. Right at 95 kilometers an hour. That's not that fast. They're bowling leg spin at, at 95 miles an hour, right? That's their arm speed. So you put Jew on that ball, and what are you supposed to do? Just not bowl any slower balls, and then the opposition line you up that way? Um, you know, and, and it's it's really, really tough. Um, yeah, I think, I think I might have joked on another previous um, uh, episode of this before about it's kind of... I kind of thought when in India struggled against Pakistan that instead of slagging off, who did they slag off? Um, uh, um, what's his name? Um, the, uh, the the fast bowler um, told him to go back to Pakistan and everything. And um, I, when um, I, I was like, if I was an Indian right now, yeah, Muhammad Shami, that's it. Um, uh, if I was in Indian right now and I had a science background, I'd be like, how do we fix Jew? Right? I mean, it probably affects the Asian teams more than the Western teams at a certain point because they're more, even more spin dependent. Although, as I said, it does affect slower balls as well. But this is what I'm going to tell you. When you go through the numbers, it's still almost 50-50, teams batting first and teams batting second in T20 cricket, right? There's not as much of an effect as this as we've seen recent times. It probably goes through periods where it happens. And this is obviously, we've seen a few here. I would say the majority of the teams who lost batting first lost because they were absolutely shithouse at batting in the first innings rather than anything that happened in the second innings. There was a handful of games where that wasn't the case. Most of the time, you know, it was terrible, terrible first innings batting. So um, I do think we need to... uh, Look, the white ball's shit. The pink ball's slightly better than shit. Uh, Some of the red balls aren't particularly good. Um... And Jew, if it, was, if it was a real sport, we would be investing millions, millions of dollars into this to fix this. Um, it's not run like a real sport. No one's in charge. Yeah, that was kind of my question because, like, uh, is there anything we could do, like change balls or do anything, literally anything, to minimize the effect that you has uh, probably get better technology than the super sopper at the grounds? Or yeah, I don't think the super sopper would help because you'd have to stop the whole game, wouldn't you? I don't know how to work it out. I wonder if we're moving towards artificial pitches. Um, so yeah, they're already in the UK started using hybrid pitches. I think we'll see more and more hybrid pitches for especially T20 and one day games going forward. Um, I'm not sure if we've, I think we've had an international on a hybrid pitch already. We will get more of those. I don't know if we'll ever go fully artificial, but we might go fully artificial. And my guess is the other thing will be the ball as we go forward. I'm sure some scientists will work out a way of, replicating leather without the downfalls of leather, right? And that that is essentially what you will need to be able to do um, going forward, I, I, would, I would assume. So I don't know how possible all those sorts of things are, but those are the two things. We've already seen it with the artificial pitches. I would assume eventually we will have an artificial um, leather ball, um, which might in certain situations work better. Um, certainly with white ball and pink balls, um, that won't be that won't be a problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem and it's been going on for a long time now. Um, and um, I, I don't know exactly how, how to fix that. Thank you, sir. Uh, no worries. This is the day of everyone putting um, chat messages in. Uh, Ikant says, uh, what matches or series in which you were at the ground did you enjoy the most and why? Um, I was at, Afghanistan's first World Cup game, uh, one-day World Cup game. That was incredible. Um, they cheered the first wide, um, their, their fans. Uh, what other incredible moments I've been at? Uh, I've been to a couple of really close tests. Obviously, the Ben Stokes. Uh, in fact, I've been to two incredibly close tests at Leeds. Just two? Yeah, I think just two. Um, ben Stokes and then the um, uh, the Sri Lanka-England test, uh, whenever that was, a few years before then. 
those were incredible moments. Uh, any World Cup final, uh, Women's World Cup final at Lords, first hundred game, uh, the women um, game that was incredible. I'm trying to think of, uh, yeah, um, uh, Mitchell Stark taking the wicket at the 2015 World Cup in the in the first over was unlike anything I've ever seen at the MCG before. Um, yeah, so there's a few a few out there. Uh, what's the benefit of hybrid pitches? How do they affect gameplay? Uh, saw them for the start of the hundred. Uh, Saad says, um, "Okay, hybrid pitches. You can reuse more. You can control them more. If we're getting to a point where we're trying to play too much cricket on these squares. If we had hybrid pitches in this World Cup, we probably would have had a better World Cup. I think they don't need to be watered as much, which is obviously going to be a concern going forward, especially in certain regions. I know the pitches in South Africa have changed massively." Um, uh, because of conditions over the last couple of years. Um, I don't think they've perfected the hybrid pitches, but you can see what, how it will happen going forward. Yeah, so I think those are probably the main ones. And I think I can finish up with... Oh, there's no, 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 no last questions. No, no last people. Perfect. Um, well, thanks again to everyone uh, for coming on. Remember, you can follow us on Spotify Green Room. Uh, if you follow me, Jared Kimber, it will give you alerts. A uh, huge thanks to everyone who supported me during the World Cup. I tried to cover the tournament as densely and as full-on as I could, which means I missed some other things. I couldn't follow the Azim Rafiq thing as much as I would have liked or the women's BBL and, and some of the other um, things that were going on in, in, in the world of cricket. But, you know, huge shout-out to everyone who listened, who retweeted, who shared, who supported us again if uh, if you want to ask the first questions on this you can support us on patreon there's also the buy me a coffee option as well a big shout out to manscaped uh, for their sponsorship next series i'm covering is the new zealand india test series i'm doing some commentary for talk sport on that so i'll probably be doing some stuff on that uh, when it comes to writing and videos <laughs> podcasts will say you know roughly the same as they always do and then uh, i go straight from that into the ashes so I've basically got seven test matches of disrupted sleep patterns coming up. But seven test matches. So there is that. Thank you, everyone, for listening, for asking questions. If you're on a Green Room, uh, if you came in halfway through on the Green Room, you can watch this on YouTube. Uh, you can also listen to it on the Red Inca podcast. And if you want to shave your testicles in a safer way, manscaped.com. Put in the code Red Inca, all one word, get 20% off. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Podcast Network. Alarm. Take MitoCue. Run, shower, breakfast, kids to school, work time, home time, dinner time, fun time, bedtime. When you're leading a full life, MitoQ can make all the difference. MitoQ is a science-based cell health supplement that helps your trillions of cells generate renewable daily energy. Because energy is renewable, time is not. Discover more at MitoQ.com. That's M-I-T-O-Q.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.